Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Maz and you're listening to episode three of the Balanced Natural Health podcast, where we discuss East, West and all the best in natural health. Right now is such an exciting time in health and wellness because increasingly we are seeing that the time-tested science and health technologies of the East are being confirmed in the modern biochemical research of the West. As a doctor of Chinese medicine, a herbalist, an acupuncturist and a long-time yogi, I've had the very good fortune to be exposed to some of the health science and ideas of the East. At the same time, I come from a family of Western scientists, and as a scientist myself, I love nerding out on the latest science and research from the West. To my mind, both ways of looking at the body share much in common. They just use different languages to describe the same things. They say knowledge is power, and so this podcast aims to bring you the best of East and West to help you empower your health. In today's episode, we're going to be building on our earlier discussion in episode two. Now, in that episode, we looked at the role of relative estrogen excess with respect to hormone balance and the various symptoms that that can present as. Now, today, we're going to go on to look at the key relationship between hormones and inflammation. And inflammation is such an important topic to understand and address because it seems that each month and each week almost more research comes out that suggests that chronic inflammation is linked to many if not most diseases ranging from heart disease to cancer depression and diabetes and this is something that chinese medicine has long understood that link between inflammation and health and in chinese medicine we've outlined diet stress management and lifestyle practices to mitigate inflammation and promote health. So let's start with a brief look at what inflammation actually is. In basic terms, inflammation is our body's innate protective response in the face of harm or hurt, such as a cut, a bruise, a sprained ankle or an infection. So in these situations, the body will mobilize cells and chemicals and processes that will help to clear out the muck of an injured or infected site and to remove and break down damaged tissue. It will protect against further encroachment by bacteria or other infective agents, and it will start to heal the affected area. Inflammation is classically characterized by four signs, and that is redness, pain, heat, and swelling. And these four arise as byproducts of the various biochemicals and processes that the body activates in the process of healing an injury or infection. And anyone who's had a sore throat, a cut, a bruise, a swollen joint, or a sprained ankle has experienced these four signs of inflammation. And when they're limited by time, meaning that they're switched off once the healing and repair has occurred, this inflammation is a healthy and adaptive response. And it feels like these days we hear a lot about inflammation. It's a term that's often thrown about and it generally has negative connotations. So it's important to point out that inflammation is not all bad. These four classic signs of inflammation that we just mentioned, redness, pain, heat and swelling, they're byproducts of the body doing healing work, which is why shutting down inflammation with measures such as anti-inflammatories or cortisone injections will certainly limit pain, 
but at the same time it will put a stop to any essential healing going on in that acute situation. And this is why we're now finally seeing research that bears out this fact. So there's a study that I've attached in my show notes, but it talks about how putting cortisone shots into knees actually has poorer long-term health outcomes, both with respect to pain and mobility, but also with a greater deterioration of knee cartilage in those knees that had cortisone injected in them. And this is because it literally puts a blanket on any healing process and shuts it down. But that's a topic for another episode because it is something that I'd love to get into on a deeper level. So back to inflammation and hormones. As I mentioned, when occurring over a short defined period, inflammation is an adaptive process, meaning that it's a positive process that facilitates healing and helps to restore our system to a state of balance. Now, the problem arises when the inflammation becomes chronic or repeated, and this is the side of inflammation that gets the deservedly bad rap. So unlike acute inflammation, chronic inflammation doesn't get shut off when the injury or infection is resolved. So it keeps being re-triggered, which leaves the body on high alert, which then will drain resources from other areas of the body and disrupt their function. So these are areas like digestion, mental health, emotional health, circulation, and of particular interest to us today in light of this episode, also hormones or the endocrine system. Chronic inflammation very often goes hand in hand with a dysregulation or imbalance of stress hormones, and that is cortisol and adrenaline. So last week in episode two, we talked about a process called pregnenolone steel. And this is the process in which the stress hormones will steal the common building blocks that are essential for all hormones, but particularly the sex hormones. So when we're pumping out a lot of these stress hormones and have a higher demand for them, in order for the body to make more and more of them, it will steal the building blocks that it also needs to use for the sex hormones, so depriving our levels of those. Now, unlike acute inflammation, which is often localized and always time limited by definition, chronic inflammation can be broad, widespread and systemic. So that means diffused throughout the body and therefore disrupting many of the body's systems. And because of this, it's now widely accepted to be a major factor in most diseases. And again, unlike acute inflammation, which has the very obvious signs of redness, pain, heat and swelling, chronic inflammation can be sneakier and less obvious to spot. So it can often be silent or just have low grade, less dramatic symptoms like fatigue or brain fog or generalized pain or joint pain and mucus. So very often when I see patients with these symptoms, we'll have a look at what's going on in diet, lifestyle, stress, emotional health and so on, and we'll investigate if and where there's some inflammation going on as well. So what are some of the culprits in chronic inflammation? Well, as it happens, there are many trigger factors for chronic inflammation that are the same ones that we discussed last week with respect to elevated estrogen. So let's have a look at what some of those trigger factors are. And these are in no particular order. So we'll start with number one, and that is toxic load. Now, toxic load just refers to the the generalized and some load of all of the toxins that our body and more specifically our liver has to deal with in order to detox and restore our bodies back to balance. 
And these are very often things in our immediate environment, such as the phthalates and parabens in products like moisturizers, shampoo, detergents, um, packaged foods, even with their plastics leaching into them. And also things like environmental pollutants on a grander scale. So whether it's petrol fumes or even of particular relevance to us now in New South Wales and Queensland, where we have all these tragic fires going on, is all that smoke pollution. So that constant irritation of the mucous membranes of the respiratory system is going to be contributing to a perpetual state of low-grade inflammation in some people. Number two is sleep and the pace of modern life. So sleep isn't a sexy health hack. It's not some shiny new gadget or superfood that's going to give you amazing um, healing results. But the fact is that sleep is such a potent healing tool because when we're asleep, our body can drop into the parasympathetic nervous system mode, which is the rest, digest, repair and heal and the body and brain can clean and heal at rest. So it's so important for our health on every level. And the pace of life, the society that we live in, it glorifies busyness and being overwhelmed is almost a badge of honor. And you know, rather than calling it out and consciously slowing down or letting some things drop by the wayside, and I know that may not always be possible, um, but we just push on and we just punch down some more caffeine or sugar or energy drinks to keep us going and while that can feel amazing in the short term because what all of those substances do is they trigger our sympathetic nervous system so they trigger the fight or flight system they release um, cortisol and adrenaline which is stress hormones and in the short term these can make us feel invincible and clear-headed so we think this is great we'll just keep going what that does is that it doesn't allow enough time in the parasympathetic mode, in the rest and digest. So that's the time when our body goes around and mops up any pockets of inflammation and just tones down the whole inflammatory response. And I think we have this idea that more is more and we'll just push on through. But there was a very interesting example recently in Japan where the whole culture of overwork has actually become a major public health concern. And in fact, it's so endemic that there's even a word in Japanese, karoshi, which means overwork death. So in light of this big burden on public health, Microsoft in Japan recently trialed a four-day work week. And what they found was that by cutting 20% of the work week, rather than dropping in productivity, productivity actually went up by 40%. And in a bonus to the environment, costs went down. So there was 23% less electricity used and a whopping 58% less pages printed and all for more productivity. So it just goes to show that more is not always more. So when guilt potentially sets in, when you know that little voice in your head goes, well, you can't rest, there's more stuff to do, I think it's good to remember that sometimes having a rest can actually yield greater results. Number three in the list of trigger factors for chronic inflammation are, not surprisingly, inflammatory foods. 
And this is something that we will go into further in future episodes when we have more time to focus on that. But just top line, these are things like polyunsaturated vegetable oils. So things like canola oil, sunflower oil, soy oil, which unfortunately are so prevalent in packaged foods and even in seemingly healthy foods. Um, if you actually look through the ingredients, you'll see that in probably 95% of cases, these are the oils that are unfortunately used. Things are slowly changing, but it's always pays to read those labels. Another big culprit is fructose, which is prevalent in fruits and also together with glucose forms 50% of common table sugar. But we also see high amounts of fructose in things like high fructose corn syrup and it's prevalent in a lot of soft drinks and again packaged foods. And it's so popular in packaged foods because it delivers more of a sweet kick, but it also comes at a cost because it bumps up inflammation in the body as well. And it's interesting that in a traditional Chinese medicine diet, we don't have much of a fruit component or a sugar component. Um, there's also a very interesting book called Sweet Poison, which looks at the impacts of fructose on a whole range of health conditions and actually ties fructose to cholesterol and not cholesterol and fat consumption. And also a study from 2012 that I came across, which looked at how a low fructose diet lowered blood pressure and inflammation in patients with chronic kidney disease. So that's a big one to watch out for as well. Um, number four is toxins in food and by this I mean non-food ingredients so these are things that you can't recognize as a whole food ingredient when you read the packaging and a good rule of thumb is if you can't recognize it or it has numbers in it like preservatives and additives and so on then it shouldn't really be going either into your body or on your body um, in a, as a moisturizer or skin product or whatever. Number five is alcohol and this doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the occasional glass of wine particularly if it's red because it has a great antioxidant called resveratrol in it which has some positive effects but certainly the sweet spot seems to be more than three drinks a week at that point it does seem to start to overload the body and can contribute to chronic inflammation number six is unresolved infections lingering pathogens and uh, what we refer to as bacterial debris and this is bits of the bacterial cell that can remain even after antibiotic use and even after the overt symptoms of an illness have gone. So these lingering infections can occur if the body is too run down to completely kick an invading bug to the curb. So you know if we're pushing ourselves and overworking and not resting enough and then maybe smashing it in the gym the body just simply runs out of reserves to address the immune system side of things and so these it just kind of lays down and gives up the fight and it allows that disease process to just fester quietly in the background and what often happens in these situations is that once we start rebalancing those underlying imbalances and we start building the body up again and allowing it to bank some energy very often once there is again some energy to continue that fight and pick it up again these infections may come to the surface again even years after the fact but this is a good thing because it means that they can then be finally resolved and then that low-grade inflammatory burden can be resolved as well 
And on that note also, uh, chronic inflammation can also happen when there's another process that the body is perceiving as something imbalanced. So that might be, say, plaque deposits on the arteries or a disrupted gut leading to leaky gut, for example. So that will also contribute to the body's state of high alert and therefore chronic inflammation. Now, number seven is an interesting one, and that is excessive cardio, particularly steady state cardio, but it can also cover interval training in people who already have a dysregulated nervous or endocrine system. And unfortunately, that is a great many of us in the society that we live in and the demands that we place on our bodies. So exercise is an important part of health. It's one of the pillars of health and daily movement should be a part of life for all of us. But it's when we're smashing our body that it can actually cause more harm than good. And this is because if we're already in that fight or flight dominant state, which can happen as a result of say, work stresses and long work hours, shorter sleep, um, inflammatory foods, stresses in your relationships and so on. If the sympathetic nervous system is already dominant, then further smashing it and pumping out more stress hormones with an elevated heart rate and high intensity cardio is just going to perpetuate that problem. And there's more on this on my blog. I will go into it again in other podcasts, but I did write an article about it called Exercise Too Much of a Good Thing. And it doesn't mean that people in this situation that they have to stop heavier exercise forever, but it just means that until their nervous and endocrine systems get a chance to rebalance and inflammation gets a chance to drop down, um, for that period, they'll be pursuing calming exercise that supports healing. Then once the body's healed, they can pick up that more intense exercise again. So we have quite a list of factors there that can contribute to inflammation. So just quickly as an overview, we've got number one, toxic load. Number two, the lack of sleep and pace of life, not enough downtime. Number three, inflammatory foods. Number four, toxins and non-foods. Number five, alcohol. Number six, persistent and lingering infections or underlying imbalances in the body. Number seven, excessive cardio um, or exercise that's not serving us or wiping us out. But the big one, the big number one headline factor in causing chronic inflammation is stress. This is such a big one. And I think such an insidious and sneaky one as well because we humans are such amazingly adaptive creatures and I think all of us have probably had that experience where we don't realize how stressed we are until a particular situation ends and we become aware of the difference in how we feel. So very often that stress just builds up, you know, week by week, month on month, year on year. And we're functioning and we're getting by. And so we think we're not stressed. I mean, everything's fine. I'm happy. Everything's good in my life. But the fact is that even positive experiences can add to our stress load. So being stressed doesn't necessarily mean it's all negative emotions. It can even be really beautiful things like um, a wedding or a new baby or a new job or moving to a place that you've always wanted to move to. All of those things come with stress and if we're not offering our bodies the balancing support to uh, process that stress and to balance that stress out, then it is going to cause an elevation of stress hormones and it's going to perpetuate chronic inflammation in the body. 
Another culprit with stress is also the internal state. So we mentioned earlier on that inflammation is the body's response to a perceived hurt or harm. And this also relates to psychological hurt and harm. And unfortunately for many people, they have an inner critic, a negative self-voice that says awful things that they would never dream of saying out loud to someone that they care about. And yet this negative loop is just going on in the background 24-7. And there are some estimates that we, of the thoughts that we have every day, 70 to 90% are repetitive or redundant, and roughly the same amount were negative or at best neutral. So really that's such a such an intense barrage that we're getting from the inside and that's in addition to all of the external life stresses that our body is trying to find balance against. So in light of that, one of the big things that I do myself, it's a non-negotiable part of my day and one thing that I recommend to all my patients is meditation. There's such an abundance of trials and research now that show just how effective meditation is in reducing stress levels, in changing immune markers in the body. There's even a fascinating study that showed that meditation could reverse or slow aging. So meditation is such a big one. Meditation, gratitude, fostering positive states of mind. I just came across what I think it's the first one that I've come across of its kind. It might be the first study of its kind where they looked at gratitude journaling in teenagers with type 1 diabetes. So these are teenagers that need to rely on insulin to maintain their blood sugar. And what they found was that the teens who were, those who were um, practicing daily gratitude journaling, so focusing on the positive aspects in their life, had a statistically significant improvement in their blood sugar regulation and it was such a positive write-up so I've included that in the show notes as well. But what that shows is that meditation and our state of mind can have a direct biochemical effect on our physical health and it's such a simple thing to do and it's something that really can benefit pretty much any health situation and even when we don't have any overt symptoms it's so great for maintaining our health and for slowing aging and keeping us healthy as we get older. I mentioned in an earlier episode that Dr. Mark Hyman said that if it was a patentable drug and a sellable drug then everyone would be prescribing it for every ill because it really is that wonderful. And meditation can be such a simple thing to integrate into your day. It can just be five minutes on waking to set a positive brain state and a positive emotional and body state for the day. And five minutes at the end of the day as a kind of mental shower or mental floss to clear your brain of the day and set you up for a deeper and more restorative sleep. And the thing that meditation and journaling both have in common is that they slow us down and bring us into the present moment and they encourage awareness of what is going on in our mind and bodies and I think that that self-awareness in each moment is what is one of the foundations of good health we can start to become aware of an imbalance as it arises so whether it's something that we need to eat our body's calling out for something when we slow down we start to become more attuned to these healthy cravings 
Um, we can also, when we slow down, we can start to become attuned to certain emotions maybe that aren't getting a chance to be felt or expressed. Um, so things that might be being redirected towards our partner or child maybe have nothing to do with them at all. So it has so many positive effects in all aspects of our life and the effects and benefits are cumulative. But even just after a few days or a week of meditation, you can absolutely start to notice the benefits. So my next episode is actually going to be about meditation and journaling and positive states of mind. And in addition to that, I'll be including a bonus five minute meditation episode to guide you through the process as well. So on that note, that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please share it with others who might be interested. If you feel inspired, please leave a review or rating on iTunes because that helps us share the love and reach more people. And just a statement as always that Chinese medicine is a personalized functional medicine that targets the treatment to each individual. So therefore, this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not replace your health practitioner's advice. If you'd like more information about Chinese medicine or balanced natural health, please get in touch on balancedacupuncture.com.au or on Instagram at balancedacupuncture or Facebook at balancedbrisbane, one word. Thank you so much for listening and wishing you the very best of health.